This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, this week, we have a very special guest. Uh, we have a friend and a prominent writer and important journalist in our society, uh, Lawrence Wright. Uh, Larry's also a, a good friend of ours, and we're lucky, lucky to be friends with him. Larry is a staff writer uh, for The New Yorker. He's a playwright. He's a screenwriter. He's a musician. Uh, he's an author of 10 books of nonfiction, including uh, one of, I think, the most influential books uh, still on uh, the events surrounding 9-11, uh, The Looming Tower, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, recently, he wrote uh, a new book about the history of Texas, including his own personal reflections called God Save Texas, which is uh, as a non-Texas native, a book that's taught me quite a lot about the state we now reside in. Uh, and Larry has just published a new novel that he's been working on for uh, at least two and a half, three years called The End of October, and it's a novel, believe it or not, about a pandemic with many eerie echoes of our current world. Uh, so we're going to talk to Larry about that, about the process of writing this novel and what, what insight it offers us for understanding the world we're in today. Uh, Larry, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jeremy. Before we turn to Larry, as always, we have our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Where did the books go? Well, let's hear it. Where did the books go? We read in school about suffering writers, about novels of suffering, stories from eternal gripers. We read in school about history, about health, about scientific mystery. We sit in damp classrooms to hear lectures about fate, the death of Banquo and guilt's tyranny upon the irate. We read in school the cynics of yesterday, laugh at the overdramatic death of characters overwhelmed by the gray. But what about poems that explain disease, memoirs from the plague, rotting among fleas. When did we forget that we have words from the other side of death, that we possess novels about human inability to face nature, poems, songs, plays, diatribes, and the rest? When did we forget that we are so small, are like rodent-sized dependents waiting for the fall, or a savior from the angels beside the one who knows all? Where did 1918 go in the history book texts, viral disease, and the health pamphlets? Where did human vulnerability go when we were taught medicine had vanquished the foe? Where were the nurses, emergency doctors, when we sang the anthem for violence adopters? Where did we lose the memoirs from death when sickness, as now, fell upon Lady Liberty's breast? When did we fail to see the books that reminded us that viral infections ignore our arrogance and power lust? Why did the studies of fate fail to produce this catastrophe, leaving us quarantined at home, waiting to atrophy? Where did the books go? I think we all know. Why we chose to ignore the words. Well, what did Napoleon say at the fall of his broadswords when he saw an entire empire collapse in a single day? It's a very thoughtful poem, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, questioning how uh, books and accounts of plagues and sickness, disease, and human vulnerability have disappeared from our conscience. And in many ways, how we focus on actions and literature that teaches us how great humans are and how we've conquered nature. But in reality, we're still so vulnerable to something so tiny that we can't even see it. Yeah. 
Larry, it seems to me that that's uh, one of the themes uh, of your book, The Vulnerability of, of Human Society. Your, your hero, uh, Henry Parsons, is, is an incredibly vulnerable character, as he's also, in a sense, the, 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 the person who's most aware of what's going on. Is, is that a fair assessment? It's totally fair. And, and let me say, Zachary, I really liked that poem. I thought that was very intriguing and really spoke to me. Um, it's, you know, Henry is, you know, this actually began with a screenplay idea from Ridley Scott. But when I when that didn't work out, I decided to make my character rather uncinematic. You know, he is vulnerable. He's flawed. He's been touched heavily by disease himself and uh you know that all those qualities those vulnerable qualities that you cite uh they're they're present in him and i think that's what draws me to him and i hope will draw the readers as well and and what drew you to write about uh, a pandemic uh and and begin this this journey a few years ago when you did well, as I said, it started with Ridley Scott trying to get me to write a script, and I did. Uh, but his question was, you know, what would what would happen? What what would bring civilization to its knees? Uh, what force? I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that one consider. You know, powerful wars, nuclear, you know, bombs. You know, there are a lot of things. But you know, when I was a young reporter. I was very affected by doing a couple of stories uh, about disease. Uh, I was living in Atlanta, not far from the Centers on, for Disease Control, and um, there was the swine flu outbreak in 1976, and that same year, the Legionnaires' disease. Two very intriguing moments in our history, now pretty much forgotten, but I was very taken by the ingenuity and courage of these kind of swashbuckling intellectual you know, epidemiologists, if you can put all those words together. <laughs> and so they were, they, 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 there's a degree of modesty that uh, is belied by what I think is unfathomable courage to go charging into places where these horrid diseases uh, break out and and with oftentimes no idea what they are, what they what the strategy of the disease is, and you know that I, honestly, Jeremy, those kinds of things scare me to death. I would I would rather go into a war zone. I, I agree. Uh, toward the end of the novel, you make the point about how we forget. You talk about, I think it's on page 248, the way we for, forget about the history of 1918, as well as, as you just mentioned, the swine flu yeah. concerns and the vaccination frenzy of 1976, which was not that long ago. Why does that happen? Why, why do we forget about these moments? Why does disease scare us, but yet it's usually not on the top of our list of national security concerns? You know, it was even true with the Black Death, which killed about half the population of Europe. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, this, you know, just reference the 1918 flu. Uh, it was overshadowed by World War One, even though the flu killed far more soldiers than the war did. As a matter of fact, the 1918 flu killed more Americans than American soldiers died in all the wars of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam. You know, I mean, all of those wars, it, the flu leveled every country. And yet it was scarcely even commented on at the time. Woodrow Wilson never mentioned it, even though he himself got deathly ill from it may have led to his stroke that incapacitated him. 
Partly, I think, Jeremy, it's because there's a perceived lack of heroism uh, in getting sick and suffering. I think also at the time in 1918, people were far more used to the idea of dying of disease. The, The 20th century was still young, and so many diseases would be conquered during that century. But, you know, typhus, diphtheria, yellow fever, cholera, uh, polio, you know, these were all very common diseases at the time. But finally, I think that there's a level of stigma and shame that is attached to disease. And, you know, those are I just offer those as hypotheses. I, I was thinking as I as I read your wonderful novel, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's a very fast paced and scary scary story. Um, I was thinking about the generation of of Jews after the Holocaust and yeah. their desire not to talk about the Holocaust. This has, of course, been written about by many historians. It, it really takes a decade and a half for a new generation to be willing to even discuss the topic. And I wonder if it's a, if it's a similar dynamic. It's the stigma, it's the embarrassment, it's the the, the lack of heroism. Pe- people yeah. don't like to talk about themselves as victims, it seems. To I me, think right? that's absolutely true. And, you know, the, the idea that you've been victimized by nature, there's no recourse. You know, uh, if, if you, you know, if you have lost a war, like, you know, let's say Germany after World War One, you can stew up, uh, you know, just tremendous amount of of resentment and and burst out at your enemies. You can't do that against nature. Uh, nature is implacable. It's pointless to try to rail against nature. So, you know, I think that's the frustration of of dealing with diseases. What does literature and and poetry and novels? What do they tell us about uh, this human struggle with disease? What what lessons do we learn from from books and and from poems? Well, I've been reading a lot of books about plagues, and you know, oftentimes, like in Camus' uh, The Plague, um, you know, that book is mainly a metaphor for the German occupation of France. Absolutely. And it feels vague and metaphorical, even though it's superbly written and, and beautiful in so many respects. And the best of the books that I've read in terms of the plague or any uh, pestilence like that is, is Pale Horse, Pale Rider by Catherine M. Porter. And uh, she actually was sick of the 1918 flu uh, she was, you know, she's from Texas, but she was a young reporter in in Denver. She was deathly ill. Her newspaper actually put her obituary, they typeset it. Oh, my gosh. And uh, when she finally uh, came to, she was bald. And when her hair grew back, it was white for the rest of her life. So you can just imagine the torment that she endured. And that novel is just beautiful and heartbreaking. I've also been reading... Uh, it's an odd the the, the Boccaccio's Decameron, sure. uh, which is a fascinating book in a in a historical way because it represents the attitudes of people as they were going through as they were experiencing the Black Death, and it's a group of ten friends who are sheltering in place and telling these stories, and the stories they tell about their society are so cynical. 
you know, you know the the, the priests who are n- never never is there a good priest. <laughs> you know, they, yes. are, <laughs> they, they don't exist. You know, and and adultery is you know uh, the, you know is the common story of almost every one of these. Uh, but you can see that there's a level of disgust with their society that. Uh, prefigures the uh, you know the end of the middle ages that people have turned against the 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 irrationality of the church and scholastic medicine and it opens the door to science and and the renaissance so that was that's a fascinating story from that perspective you know i, I I've read that Daniel Defoe book, the Journal of the uh, Journal of the Plague yes. year that's also from a writer's point of view one of the most intriguing because Daniel Defoe was a child when uh, the plague struck London, and uh, he writes it as if he experienced it. Apparently, he may have had some relative that gave him, you know, but it reminds me in a very modern way of a nonfiction novel. Uh, It's a form that I didn't know existed at that era, and I don't know that it was repeated, but it's a fascinating work of literature. I agree. And, and and one of the things that seems to run through all of these works, including your own, Larry, uh, is this sense of social decay that seems to go along with health decay. Yeah. And and I wonder what, what connection you were thinking about, uh, because I do think it's present in, in your novel as well, without giving away any details. I, I, to what extent were you thinking about that relationship when you wrote your novel? Well, you know, it's much on my mind right now, Jeremy, because... Uh, you know, I've been looking back at the Black Death in 1918 and other instances, the Plague of Athens and so on. What happens afterward? Right. And, uh, you know, the in some ways, you know, a war or a depression uh, or a pestilence like this is, is it like an x-ray of the society you live in. And it's suddenly revealed to you who we are and what kind of society we have made. And I think everybody is pretty dismayed by what they've seen it's an opportunity you know once it's been made clear to you the weaknesses in our society the fault lines the partisanship those kinds of things the needless conflict all of those things are impeding us as a society and it suddenly becomes very clear the cost uh not only in financial terms but in spiritual terms we're having to face the truth about who we are and this is also an opportunity. I'm not saying that we will take it, but I think that there is going to be a time when we'll look back at the COVID-19 era as the great turning point, the time when we could have made a change. And whether we did or not, it's going to determine whether we we're prepared for the big one. I don't think this is the big one, but one like this will come one day. And uh, we'll have to be ready for it. Uh, I, I think that's so well said, Larry. And I, I was thinking about this as I, as I read the novel. And uh, one of the characters I was drawn to uh, was Majid. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about him because I want, I want readers to, to buy the book and have a chance to read it. But in a certain way, there's a, there's a, there's a reconciliation between uh, two worlds that, that you have in the midst of these worlds going to war with one another. And I was thinking about that as, as a metaphor for today and the ways in which, for instance, people, especially in cities like New York, are finding themselves uh, expressing appreciation for police officers and healthcare workers, some of the, those who often are the, the worst treated in our society. Uh-huh. 
And and so I, I was wondering if you were reflecting on that as well. Well, you know, Prince Majid is Henry's friend. He's a he's a Saudi prince. He's also a, a doctor, a medical doctor, an epidemiologist uh, like Henry, and uh, and they're bosom friends. Yes. Um, and you know, this it reflects on two things. One was the um, we live in an age when it's hard to make a convincing hero. And uh, yet, for me, those people in public health just were heroic by instinct, by nature. And I, I admire them so much that it was no problem for me to, to attribute these qualities of heroism to them, because I think they really exemplify people in that, that line of work. Yeah. The other thing that about Majid uh, is that I lived in Saudi Arabia after 9-11, um, the, uh, you know, I, I, they wouldn't let me in as a reporter, so I became a, a, an expat worker. I, uh, I, I mentored these young reporters in, in Jeddah, hmm. uh, bin Laden's hometown, and one of my first assignments was to oversee their coverage of the Hajj. And, of course, I couldn't go to the Hajj myself. I couldn't go to Mecca. But, uh, you know, I was on the phone all the time talking to them. And, and the thing that most impressed me was uh, how dangerous it was from a health point of view. You got yes. two or three million people all pressed together from other parts of the world. Every year there is some kind of dire outbreak. And I thought, you know, what if something really big started there and then instantly went all over the world? Uh, you know, that that thought preoccupied me uh, for quite a while and, and never really left my mind. And I have to say, uh, you do a wonderful job in the novel of describing the Hajj and describing the experience there, uh, almost giving us a, a front row seat in, in some respects. Uh, one of the things about your heroic figures, your Henry and your Ma Prince Majid and, and, and others, uh, Bartlett, I think, is another one in the book, uh, you have them speaking truth to power. They all have moments when um, they have to uh, dissent and sometimes even risk their uh, their positions and risk their lives to criticize more powerful superiors. Do, do you think that's a necessary part of addressing uh, health crises like this? Oh, yeah, we're certainly seeing it now, aren't we? Yes. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's. It, I have to say, it's totally maddening to me that they have to do this. You know, there are plans, you know, the government made plans for occasions like this. And, uh, you know, and the healthcare experts drew them all up as very well detailed. In fact, I drew upon a lot of this material. You know, there were not just, you know, books about it. There were tabletop exercises there, you know, and, and I talked to so many experts who are now on the front lines of trying to create a vaccine and, and and combat this adversary, but it was all there. You didn't need to have, you know, right. experts making improvising or politicians guessing how how we're going to handle this. There's a playbook, and uh, had we followed that playbook from the beginning, we'd be in better shape than we are now. And and why do you think we didn't? Well, first of all, you know, in, in the current administration, when it came into office, it cut the budget for uh, the Center for Disease Control, among many other agencies. And um, one of the things that uh, I mourn about that, the Centers for Disease Control had surveillance teams in about 50 countries, which they had to suspend. And one of those countries was China. 
the administration is railing against uh, the World Health Organization. We had our own people there, but we we cut the funds and and and, and lost that. So we didn't have the inside track that uh, we would have had. The other thing is that in 2016, uh, John Bolton, who was then the National Security Advisor, eliminated the the pandemic preparedness force right. from the National Security Council. It had been led by a- Admiral Timothy Zemer, who had overseen the, uh, con- the fight against malaria in Africa and is credited with saving six million lives. Now, yeah. he would have been, that whole team would have been in charge of America's response to the pandemic we're facing now, but it doesn't exist any longer. Right, right. There was a section, it's page 148 in your book, that uh, that it was one of many sections, Larry, that just jumped out at me. It, it was as if you were writing news coverage today. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it because it, it just it, it, it made me shiver. Uh, it's uh, This is Bartlett, who is, if I remember, Bartlett uh, works for the CDC, right? And she's, she's, yeah, she's a public health officer. Right. And she's briefing the uh, the task force that's been created in your novel to address uh, the virus. And the task force is headed by the vice president. In yeah. your novel. <laughs> yeah. It's a surprise. And, yeah. and Bartlett says to the vice president, I know what you people want me to say, but that's not my job, is it? I'm supposed to be giving you information, real information. What you do with it is your job. Now, if you had been doing your job and providing us with the resources we asked for, this refers to what you were just talking about, maybe we wouldn't be sitting here sucking our thumbs while people are suffering and the economy is going to hell and the graveyards are filling up and all because people like you didn't care enough about public health to pay attention to our needs. Uh, you, you could have been writing that today, Larry. Yeah. Well, it's an indictment, in it? And, and, it, it, and they, des- you know, they deserve that indictment. Uh, you know, we were not prepared. And it's very clear. Uh, and it's been sad to me to see like a once distinguished agency, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, at one point, one of the prize agencies in our government stumble so badly, uh, you know, at, at the cost of many lives. You know, the the fact that they could not get the, uh, the, the swab test to see if you were uh, infected or not, it, months passed. Uh, we're still struggling to get an anti- antibody test. Uh, it, it, it's it's nuts, and you know the, it, there's some hubris involved in this too. I think because there are other nations like Germany that seem to have very good tests. Why don't we just use that? No, right. we're getting in this rut where we have to make our own test and and delay and delay and delay until it's mo- it becomes moot whether you're going to use it or not. Yeah, well said. Well said, Zachary. I think what's what's really powerful about your novel is you make you make the health you make the science very human and very personal. How do we make sure that we we place public health in the position of importance that it deserves uh, and how it influences us in our everyday lives? Well, we have to have a more responsible and compassionate government to start with. I think it's pretty clear uh, to. Most Americans, you know, the limitations that we're facing right now with our, our current administration, and, and that's true, some of the state uh, governments as well. If we can elect a more responsible government, then we'll probably have to deal with, uh, we will certainly have to deal with the limitations that we've found in our response in this case. We have to do something that is not just good enough to deal with COVID-19, you have to deal with something that is as devastating as the, as the influenza that I invented, because 
it's as plausible as <laughs> as anything right. else. Right. Uh, you know this this particular virus that we're uh, fighting now is incredibly ingenious and strange, unusual uh, in so many different respects, and we're we're learning things about it every day. But you know there was a an attempt to make a vaccine for MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which uh, was in 2010, I think, uh, something like that. I think so, and, yeah. And it, it killed 35% of the people it infected. So it's far more fatal disease. And uh, and then it went away and then the, the money was um, withdrawn for the vaccine. What remained of the effort to build that vaccine is now being uh, reassembled to try to fight against COVID-19, and it's already in human trials. But had we pursued that, we would be f- much further along the line to developing a vaccine that would be effective right now. Right. And and certainly countries like South Korea, which had dealt with SARS and other um, epidemics uh, in recent years, they were better prepared in terms of their health inf- infrastructure than, than, than we were. Well, they were far more aware of the risk. I mean, SARS, I think, scared the crap out of them. And, right. uh, you know, it, it, every country that had that experience and, and realized what could happen, you know, they, I think that they really did get the message. Uh, but it, you know, it got all the way to Toronto, you know. Uh, but the uh, and it was a miracle of the public health officers around the world that it was contained and stopped within a hundred days. Right, and it was a miracle, uh, Larry. We always like to close uh, with a, a positive discussion about uh, what our listeners, many of whom are, are young young people, probably at home right now, uh, what they uh, can do to make a difference. And uh, I I want them all to read your novel. Uh, If they're in one of my classes, it will be assigned to them. Uh, As they read it, what do you want them to take away as things they can do to help our society going forward so we don't repeat this terrible moment we're in? Well, Jeremy, I think we're at a fork and we can go one way or the other. If you look at all the problems that we're dealing with, it, it should be pretty clear that we need to have more accountability in our government, more respect for science. We need to diminish the partisanship, uh, the conflicts that we, the geopolitical conflicts that we have going on now are very dangerous. Just the blame, for instance, that uh, countries are blaming the United States for creating it in a lab, and we're saying the same thing about China. These are irresponsible and dangerous accusations. And we have the opportunity uh, to change those things. And yet, when we've come into these inflections in, you know, in our history, like 9-11, I remember so strongly the sense uh, after that day, oh, we're going to have to stand for something now. We're yes. going to have to be the country that our parents gave us. You know, they, these were, I, I know I wasn't alone. I know a lot of people that felt that same way. Think about the, all the people that signed up, you know, joined the army and stuff like that. There was tremendous Absolutely. upsurge. And what did we do? We invaded Iraq. We made a ca- catastrophic error. Instead of reforming our country and moving, we, we just made a really big mistake. Now, another example is the Arab Spring. 
you know, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and, you know, my heart is, you know, very much goes out to those people. They, they so desperately need reform and democracy. And I thought the Arab Spring was that moment. And yet what happened is that most of those countries have become only more tyrannical. So the, the lesson is, I think, that we have the opportunity to make the changes that will make us a stronger culture and a better society. It's in our hands. But we also have the same elements in our society that could defeat it. And those are the elements that we have to defeat ourselves. And, and, and just to extend that a little bit, how, how do we do that? Uh, how do we not make the same mistakes we made? I, I, I like you, thought after 9-11 that we were going to see the better angels of our nature. And for a little while we did. And, and, and in some respects, the, the negative elements that came out of that are what brought us to today, Larry, right? Yeah, I think that, for one thing, standing on the sidelines and criticizing is not the way to go. People have to be activated. And, yes. uh, you know, they, they have to, for instance, I urge young people to, you know, look at public health and medicine as, you know, this is a, you know, a truly noble calling. And, you know, those that might be inclined, you know, this would be a great thing to do. I think that, you know, we've seen, for instance, this just from a business standpoint, the manufacturing, the supply chain, we've got to do a lot to fortify our country and make it more resilient. So if you're in the business uh, world, then, you know, there's something you have to look at what would make our nation safer, you know, that we should be able to you know, to manufacture the kinds of products that we need uh, without depending on a foreign country that might decide to use those products for themselves or withhold them for political reasons. Uh, We, and I think our education has to be, I think we've lost the sense that patriotism is a good thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. We need to cherish the country that we have and the institutions that we've built and try to make sure that they're strong. So, you know, I think the, the partisanship is, is very crippling, but what we really need is an upsurge of commitment. And I, I, I look at young people today, and they seem far more committed than my generation was. So I, I have a, a great deal of hope with them. I share that. I always uh, say to people, you've heard me say this, Larry, I have the best job in the world because I get to work with so many young people and they're, they're so much better than, uh, than those of us who are not as young. Uh, and that's, that's instructive. That's instructive for us. Z- Zachary, is, is this inspiring for you? Do, you? do you agree with Larry that there's an opportunity for young people to see a mission here and a mission not for war or for violence, but a mission for health and love and caring and bringing people together. Do you see that happening among young people like yourself? I, I do. I, I think that that if we come out of this pandemic uh, the best that, that that we can be, I think that means that, that we're going to become a nation that's much more dedicated to humanitarian issues, to, to health, and to kindness for all. And I think that the literature, uh, like Mr. Wright's book and others that are coming out right now, gives us an opportunity to understand this moment, not just from a scientific perspective, but from a cultural perspective, to hopefully move closer to that moment. Right. There, there is a sense, Larry, in which maybe your book can be part of an emerging literature like the literature surrounding uh, abolition or the literature surrounding uh, civil rights and other moments that provided people, provided citizens with an imagination of a different world, a world that was, was less militaristic and more committed to the, the values that you articulate so well. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I hope that's true. 
Well, I hope all of our listeners will will read your book. It's available on Kindle and in hard copy. Uh, I just read it, as I said, and it, it's really a page turner. And uh, it's it at times it's uh, it's a little scary, but it's a book that uh, one really learns a lot from, and it's it's a gripping story with many surprise turns, none of which I think we've given away. That was my concern. <laughs> Thank you for that. Away. <laughs> I encourage everyone to get a copy of the End of October. And also to look up Larry on the web. I know he's doing many other interviews in various other places. Uh, so uh, I hope everyone will will take advantage of that. Larry, thank you for joining us. And thank you for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been my pleasure. And thank you, Zachary. <laughs> yes, thank you, Zachary, for your excellent poem. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.